0: I'm Felix Salmon, and welcome to Axios Recap, where we dig into one big story. Today is Tuesday, November the 9th, and we're focused on the end of General Electric. Back in 2000, it was the most valuable company in the world. It was named the world's most respected company by the Financial Times three years in a row. It was led by Jack Welch. You might remember him, the guy who made shareholders gazillions of dollars and himself while also firing thousands of employees. They called him Neutron Jack because he would fire all of the humans and the buildings would stay standing. Over the subsequent 20 years, the 129-year-old company imploded slowly It lost its AAA credit rating, it sold off all of the divisions, including the arm that made Saturday Night Live, it was lampooned across many seasons of the hit show 30 Rock, and eventually in the 2008 financial crisis, thanks to all of that debt that Jack Welch had taken on, it found itself in existential peril. After that, there were attempts to rebuild the glorious world-spanning of old. But let's just be frank about it. They failed miserably. And today, GE announced the end of the dream. The company is breaking up into three component parts. And as of 2023, it's basically no longer going to exist. After the break, I'm going to speak to journalist Ted Mann. He literally wrote the book about what went wrong at GE to find out, well, what went wrong at GE. Ted Mann, author of the best book about the general electric decline and journalist at The Wall Street Journal. Welcome to Axios Recap. Thanks for having me. What's the sort of elevator pitch version of how GE managed to become so absolutely enormous in the first place?
1: First by being a conglomerate in the age of the conglomerate, where it was the trend that giant companies would move into lots of industries and could manage them centrally and would have this enormous scale to have the capital to essentially do what they needed to do in a bunch of different places at once. It's also the case that in the Welch years... They got a little bit hooked on being in finance. As someone once said to us, like once Jack Welch realized how much easier it is to make a dollar with a dollar than it is to make a dollar by making something, they were sort of off and running with GE Capital. And that's when they did that hockey stick on the stock chart and became the seventh largest bank in addition to making all of the heavy industrial products that were their original bailiwick.
0: The myth was that the GE had this incredible core of managers, and you could throw these managers into any industry, and that industry would outperform because it was being run by GE managers. And then it turned out that they would do things like buy Alstom, which was this French energy company, which was worth some negative amount of money for like some enormous amount of money. And then everyone was like, you're really not so smart after all, are you?
1: Right. Or, or even even bigger than Alstom, You know, at the same time they're doing that, while they were in the process of undergoing this other pivot to try to lessen their dependence on finance, they managed to mismanage the power business, the core of the entire company, the beginning of the company that was just being completely misrun and literally ran out of cash. When Tom Greta and I wrote a book about them, we used the word hubris a lot because it was this idea that what was obviously a challenge just wouldn't really matter because they were GE. And so their size and their complexity wouldn't sort of doom the effort in the way that it had for, for RCA and for Westinghouse and for all these other conglomerates that are gone.
0: Ted, you literally wrote the book on the decline and fall of General Electric. This is the end of GE, right? As it ever used to be conceived? Yes, The short answer is absolutely yes. Is this the outcome that people were trying to avoid? And if so, why were people trying to avoid it?
1: I think it depends which people we're talking about. I think there are many people who were still invested emotionally in the old GE somehow working or coming back to life or doing some sort of version of what it used to do. And then there were a lot of investors who, for various reasons, were kind of letting GE operate as an outmoded conglomerate years and years after everyone else had been forced to break up and specialize. So I think there are many people, many investors, who are quite happy about this.
0: The idea being that investors generally don't like conglomerates and GE was a conglomerate and so finally it's got with the times. Is that is that the picture?
1: That's part of it. Also, the, the thing about GE and what made it special was part of what they were offering was this idea that they were a different kind of conglomerate they could manage anything they could go into any business any industry and because of their skill at management all of the downsides of a conglomerate the complexity the lack of transparency the lack of focus didn't matter because their model was so much more efficient that they could make it work. And starting a few years back when the stock dove and it was, it became clear that they weren't even doing their their most core industry, you know, they weren't even sort of managing to run that properly, it became clear that, that all of that myth wasn't really, was just myth. It was not really working as they promised.
0: My colleague Kate Marino, the business editor, told me that I needed to ask you about Jack Donaghy. He's Alec Baldwin's character on 30 Rock. He was the Vice President of East Coast Television and Microwave Oven Programming. It was a running joke about GE, which obviously used to own NBC and Saturday Night Live. Was the was that crazy job title based in actual GE reality?
1: Sure. It, it was, you have to go back to, it was Jack Welch who first sold off the small appliances, the, the <laughs> toasters, you know, they've so they've been sort of shedding some of this stuff for my entire lifetime. But yeah, it was at one point. Wildly complex. They owned a mining division at one point. Welch hated the mining, if I remember right. Just wildly diverse. But they were they were not alone. You know, United Technologies made jet engines and they made soft serve ice cream dispensers. Honeywell is made boots and gloves and engines. And so like they weren't alone in that. But then eventually they were because everybody else was forced or chose to streamline, to simplify, to spin out, to break up. And GE was sort of invested in still being GE. And it's, there were advantages to its scale. I mean, there, there's a reason that they were for a long time until they weren't such a reliable, giant, dividend you know, stock. They were the sort of last of the
0: blue chips of that type. So we're going to end up with three different companies at the end of this. There's going to be a healthcare company, jet engine company, and power company. Are any of these world-class companies on their own?
1: Well, the jet engine business is is a leader in the production of jet engines in the world. certainly that's that's undisputed, and power has been laboring to get back to decent operation, but but they have a dominant market position. There are huge questions about what is happening to the power you know generation business to begin with. But that'll have both renewables and you know fossil fuel fired power. What remains to be seen is how well they'll do out on their own. There was always this talk from GE folks when one of those sectors would have a down quarter, that they were being helped along by the others. For a bad spring in the healthcare business, well, power would have a good spring. And so there was this idea that the conglomerate helped sustain some of those through the through the bad times. That isn't really an argument that investors were willing to let other companies make as a justification for complexity and being a giant conglomerate. I do think it'll be interesting to see how well they do out on their
0: own. So tell me about the timing of this. How long are we going to have to wait before we actually have three different companies? And I'm assuming that the two that are getting spun off are going to have some incredibly expensive corporate rebrand and they're going to be called something else.
1: Yes. Yeah. There will be some some word that used to be a word in English that has had some letters changed, if history serves. Early 2023 is when they're talking about doing the spinoff of healthcare. And that was the one that a previous CEO had planned to spin off already, John Flannery. So they're going to go ahead with that, hold on to a stake in it. But by early 2023, they're saying that will be out on its own. They'll mesh together the the gas-fired uh, power turbines and the, the wind turbine business, what's left of their GE digital software business that didn't really ever take flight will be stuck into power, and that will be spun off in, in 2024. And that will leave, you know, GE, which used to be, you know, a maker of power turbines, will be a jet engine business on its own, in theory, by, by 2024.
0: When Jack Welch was a corporate hero and... GE stock was this insane up and to the right rocket ship. It was kind of the Tesla of its time. And there was a huge amount of financial engineering going on. And a lot of that was driven by leverage. With hindsight, was any of that actually real? I mean, it all came apart very dramatically during the financial crisis. But like, was there ever any there there?
1: Yes, there was. And I think that the fight that GE people will be having among themselves forever is how much did Jeff Immelt mismanage what he was bequeathed by Welch that was working great and that everybody loved? And how much did Welch leave Jeff Immelt a falling knife? You know, a stock that was already declining from these insane heights. But there was, at the end of the day, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people in that company who could build great jet engines and who could make locomotives and who made mri machines they were even pretty good at at mid-market lending there was value and there still is value in what's left but what is gone is this idea that this one particular group of people were so good at specifically management and business that they could stuff all of this stuff under one roof and make it worth so much more than really any other company could justify it being worth. That's gone. It's over.
0: Ted, man, thank you so much for coming on Axios Recap. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Welcome back. What I'm watching today is the number of credit cards in America. It hit an all-time high in the third quarter of this year, 520 million credit cards. That's over half a billion credit cards. There's only 200 million adults in America. I got that number from a New York Fed report that just came out today. This is a big move because back between 2008 and 2010, the number of credit cards in America fell off a cliff. It dropped by more than 100 million. We have now more than made up for that drop. And there's a bunch of other ways that people are borrowing money too. Buy now, pay later is the new hotness from companies like Affirm. In all, household debt, says the New York Fed, is more than $15 trillion, of which $800 billion is credit cards. Turns out that if you thought the pandemic was going to mean a big reduction in Americans' debts, you are completely wrong. We seem to be gearing up for more consumer borrowing than ever. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Felix Salmon, and we'll be back tomorrow with another Axios Recap.